chapter 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Amen. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. So this is our 20th and final week in the book of James. Uh, we've been taking our time for the last uh, number of months. And if you've been with us, you know that James is a practical book. Uh, he's, a, he's a pastor, a very down-to-earth guy, and, uh, and he longs to see believers, especially those who have been uh, scattered by persecution. His church was largely dispersed. Uh, because of persecution from people like the Apostle Paul before his conversion. Um, and so he, he longs to see believers, particularly those in hard times, suffering, in need, living out the gospel in their day-to-day -day lives, showing that God is good in the midst of difficulty, shining with a life that is above reproach, a, a life that displays Christ's likeness and God's character in their behavior. He longs to see Christians growing into maturity, and godliness that are stable and steadfast and persevering in the faith. He wants to see Christ displayed in and through them wherever they may have found themselves scattered in the empire. And for this reason, he has repeatedly addressed sins that all of us struggle with. Uh, I would imagine that, that it's, at least at some point in the series on James, the thought has crossed your mind you know, they were dealing with some of the same things 2,000 years ago that I seem to be dealing with today. Uh, the human heart hasn't changed all that much over the last uh, 2,000 years. That, that the same underlying sins, while they may take shape differently in different cultures, the same root sins are there. And James uh, isn't afraid to be direct, isn't afraid to be blunt. Uh, he's not afraid to, to, to surface and to bring before us the sins that all of us struggle with. It's an incredibly practical book. He addresses the importance of controlling our tongues, something that uh, continues to be a struggle for many of us. He confronts the dangers of wealth, something particularly appropriate in America today. Uh, he addresses the necessity of, of, of living what we believe uh, particularly in terms of our compassion and tangible help extended to those in need. He addresses the centrality and importance of prayer. And here, as he wraps up his letter, uh, he, he gives one final word on the critical importance of accountability. Accountability is something that that I would imagine at least all of us are somewhat familiar with. We know that our you know, elected officials and politicians need to be held accountable. And every four years or six years or whatever the term may be, there's an opportunity for us as voters to hold them accountable in terms of whether or not they stay in office. And, and we want there to be uh, accountability in terms of, of oversight, making sure that things are, are done ethically and above board. Uh, perhaps with, uh, perhaps especially as it relates to finances, we know the importance of accountability and oversight to make sure that, 
that things are being done honorably. As, as a church, whenever tithes and offerings are counted, there's always two people counting together. Just We, we want to stay above board. We want there to be accountability there, not, not one person kind of alone on their own with the temptation there to, to, to be corrupted. Um, you might have accountability at work. Uh, perhaps a manager, someone who oversees your department, or, or maybe if you're in a factory or you produce something tangible, maybe you have a quality control department that provides a bit of accountability, making sure that what you're producing meets the specifications that it's supposed to meet. I think we all recognize the importance of accountability in different aspects of society and, and our lives, and yet... I don't know about you, I'd imagine the same, but I've met countless Christians who live as if there should be no accountability in regards to the faith or one's walk with the Lord. You know, I, 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 I do my thing and you do your thing and maybe we see each other in church or maybe, maybe nature is my church, but, but who are you to tell me how I should live my life? You know, I think a lot of people have this kind of isolationist mindset that that, that it's just me and God, and, and, and you don't, don't say anything about my faith. I first encountered this kind of uh, um, unfamiliarity or, uh, or, or misunderstanding of, the, of the, the importance of accountability. A number of years ago, I uh, was co-officiating a wedding with Alex Barchuk. Uh, Igor and Nellie, Danny Luke, a number of years ago, were married in California, and, and I was there uh, officiating. I gave the message at the wedding, and, and it, there was a number of both English and Russian speakers there, so my message uh, was, was being translated into Russian. And so before the ceremony, I, I had a chance to interact with the, the guy who would be my translator. And, and he's, you know, if, if you've never been in a situation where you've had to, to speak with a translator, it's it forces you to think about what you're saying in a little bit different way. The illustrations that don't quite carry over, idioms and phrases that just, you know, if, if you translate them literally, everyone would be confused. Um, you know, you've got you to think about what you're doing. And I remember as, as I was talking through, one of the things I really admired about Igor and Nelly was, was the example that they set in terms of the priority that they saw for accountability. Uh, they, they both just modeled this humility where they would invite and welcome others into their lives to speak to them, to confront them with things. They, they knew that they needed people that they were intimate enough with who could say, hey, what's going on here? Hey, you need to address that. I, I, it takes a lot of humility to really embrace accountability. And, and I, I admired that so much about them. And so I wanted to um, kind of honor them in that way in the ceremony. And the person who was translating uh, for me got stumped with that word accountability. And, and, and I've since uh, discovered in talking to other Russian speakers that there is a Russian word for accountability, but it's, it's not a commonly used word. It's kind of a highfalutin, you know, kind of a, a little more academic. And it's, it's, not, it's not a common word that they use. And, and vocabulary is interesting. When, when a language lacks a word, sometimes the people lack the concept. You know, and, and not, 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 not that they don't, and not that Russians don't understand anything about accountability, but, but the sense in which this being an everyday necessity, an everyday part of the faith where 
Um, you, you just understand how important it is for people to be intimately sharing life with you so that they can speak to you, rebuke you, encourage you. Um, I, I think God has made persevering in the faith a community endeavor. Uh, none of us are meant to live this Christian life alone. Uh, as John Donne once uh, wrote, no man is an island. Uh, God, God invented the church because he, he didn't mean for us to live in isolation. He meant for us to live in community, uh, to live supported with people that we're rubbing shoulders with, that, that are picking us up and, uh, and that we are being picked up by. And, and, and we need that. When we lose that, when we wander from that, just as if you take a coal out of a fire, how long is that coal going to stay hot? Not very long. You, you pull it away and it will grow cold, just as we, in isolation from the church, will all too easily grow cold in our faith, grow lazy, grow apathetic, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll lose that edge, we'll stop sharing our faith with those around us. It's, it's all too easy to, to kind of slowly cool yourselves into a life of sin or apathy without the church there to sharpen and to stoke the, the, the flames and to keep the faith growing in us. And so, so there's this incredible ministry of reaching out and pulling back and encouraging uh, that, that gets to the very heart of God. Uh, before we jump into James today, I, I want you to glance with me at Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke chapter 15, and Jesus gives three back-to-back parables of, they're giving a picture of God on the hunt, you know, the way that God pursues sinners and pursues those who have wandered away from him. There's three parables in Luke chapter 15, uh, parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and parable of the lost son, as they've often been referred to. Uh, so I'll just, I'm going to read a decent chunk here um, because I, th- I think most of it is self-explanatory. But uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners, it's in quotes there, you know, people that everyone kind of looked down upon. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And he continues. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He continues with another story, and you'll see this progression from one out of a hundred to one out of ten to one out of two 
this man with two sons, and each time this, this increasing, like if you're going to rejoice over one sheep, and if you're going to rejoice over one coin, just as you would rejoice over a lost son, it's kind of this building progression that gets us closer and closer to the heart of God and how he cares for those who have wandered from the truth. So Jesus continued, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, Father, give me what I would get when you die. I don't care about you, just I want my inheritance. As if you died, give me my portion. So, so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out. And go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Interrupting here, it says, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We get get these three parables back to back of Something being lost and the person searching until they find it, rejoicing when they found it. This is a picture of God on the hunt, God in search of wandering sinners that he might bring them back to repentance. Um, Just as, as as a shepherd looks for a sheep and as a poor woman looks for one of her ten coins and just as a father looks for a son. And then we even get at the tail end of of Luke 15, one more illustration with the older brother in this in this parable. Verse 25, uh, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So again, person searching, so the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In this chapter, we get a, a picture, a little window into the very heart of God. What stirs God's heart? What 
you know, what, what does God dwell on? What does he find joy in? And he finds joy in people who have wandered being brought back. That, that, that's his heart. He's a God who pursues and a God who celebrates that return. And it's for this reason that, that God calls us to join him in that pursuit of wandering sinners. And so if, you, if you're still in Luke 15, turn left to one more passage before we get to James. Uh, look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18, and here Jesus brings up this example of a lost sheep again. So if you're in Luke 15, turn left. You hit Mark, and then keep going to Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. And I'll start at verse 12. And here we see the emphasis on our role in this spiritual reclamation project, this, this, this challenge we have to go out and seek the wandering and the lost. Matthew 18, verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills to, and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. So God is just like the shepherd, just as he said in Luke 15, who, who goes pursuing that lost sheep. But then notice, notice where Matthew continues and what Jesus goes on to say. Just after talking about the role of pursuing that one that's wandered, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus goes right from this, this, this story, this illustration of a shepherd going after the sheep, right into this passage on church discipline, on the importance of when someone sins, you go one-on-one -on -one in love and you try to bring it up, you try to address it, you try to see if they'll acknowledge that sin, confess that sin, repent of that sin. And if they don't, bring two to three others along. If they want to do that, then bring it to the church. And, and I would say not necessarily raising your hand on a Sunday morning gathering and saying, hey, here's what I saw so-and-so, but bring it to the elders of the church. Um, and, and if it finally comes to, you know, if there's someone's living in some adulterous relationship and no matter who and how many people confront them, there's no turning from that. After a season of the elders pleading with them and there's still no repentance, uh, then it, it wouldn't be on a Sunday morning service. It would be at a, at a church membership meeting where we would talk about this. And, and that final step is... Is, is removing them from membership, this, this treating them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Not that we would harass them. How, how do we treat pagans and tax collectors? We try to share the gospel with them. You know, we, we try to love them into the faith, but we don't treat them as if everything is all right. We don't treat them as if they're great, let's hang out, you know, no, 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 nothing serious going on here. We treat them as, this is, a, this is a big deal. We need to deal with sin here that needs to be repented of. And notice how Jesus sees this process of pursuing sin, pursuing repentance in someone else. This is the process by which we go after lost sheep. He just says, you've got one wandering off, you go after him, and this is what it looks like to go after him. It's not like, 
we're, we're actually sheep and we're like hiding in some crag or some bush around the corner. Like the way that we pursue wandering sheep is by lovingly confronting them in their sin. The wandering is not a physical wandering, it's a spiritual wandering. It might be a doctrinal wandering or behavioral wandering as we see in James. And this, this mission to pursue them is a mission in love to pursue the way in which uh, and confront the way in which they're wandering. This gets to the very heart of God. God is a God, God that pursues and he invites us to be a part of this spiritual ministry of bringing others back who have wandered away. Having seen that foundation, let's go back to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we're looking at verses 19 and 20. Two short verses, but I think there's a lot here for us to digest. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I just want to make a few observations kind of walking our way through this passage. And the first just is, is that opening phrase, my brothers. I haven't drawn too much attention to this throughout the book of James, uh, but James uses this language of brothers, my brothers, my dear brothers, uh, over and over again. My brothers is eight times, just brothers is another seven times, uh, which is pretty striking because Paul wrote 13 letters, and, and there's a total of eight times in all 13 of his letters that he says, my brothers. So we've got one letter of James, 13 letters of Paul, and they both use this phrase the same number of times. James really has this heart of, my brothers, he, he's got this like, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a pastor's pastor, like he's, he's got this heart for his people, my brothers, and, and, and that would just as easily today be my brothers and sisters. It's not gender specific, but it's about, you know, my, my fellow siblings in the faith. Do we have a mindset like James that Christians, wherever they are, are our brothers and sisters? In your family, if you have a physical, earthly, um, whether by blood or by adoption, if you have physical brothers and sisters, you know that there's a, a bond there, there's a permanence there, even if they drive you nuts, and even if you don't call each other every night before bed, like you know that there's... There's, there's, there's a relationship there that, that can't change. No matter what they go off and do in their life, they're still your brother and sister. There's a, there's a connection there. And hopefully that's, that's a connection that's expressed in action, that you uh, have a particular concern for them, maybe a protection for them, uh, especially, you know, I think older brothers and younger sisters. You know, there's that, that kind of protection thing that steps in sometimes. But, but as siblings, we should care uh, care for one another, and James has this view that as, as the family of God, whether, whether our brother or sister is next door or across the globe, there's a unity there, there's a oneness, and, and, and your family, and I, I, I need to care about you as family. I think that the mindset that James has, I think that kind of undergirds this compassion to reach out you know, if, if one of your siblings, you know, started get dabbling in drugs, you know, at the beginning of addiction or something like that, I would imagine that, that you would treat that with a seriousness greater than 
If it was just someone that you happen to know, you know, some former coworker or some person out there, when it's a brother or a sister that raises the seriousness for you and you say, I, I, I've got to say something. They may not listen to me. They don't care, but I've, I've got to say something. I've got to do something. This is my brother. This is my sister. Maybe you've had a brother or a sister um, take, make choices like that, as, as, as I have, and you feel this like, I've got to do something. I've got to say something. I've got to intervene in some way. Whether it works or not, I can't just sit back because they're my brother. They're my sister. In Genesis 4, uh, after Cain killed Abel, God says, Cain, where, where's your brother Abel? Remember Abel's, or is, uh, do you remember Cain's response? I don't know, am, am I my brother's keeper? Is it up to me to watch over him? There's a sense in which James says, to some extent, we are our brother's keeper. Obviously, there's an ultimate responsibility that's on them for their choices. We can't make those choices for them, but there is a concern, there's a compassion, there's a sense of oversight in the family of God that that though I can't make their choices for them, I'm going to care enough to speak into their life if they start wandering from the truth, which is how James continues. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, one of you should wander from the truth. Uh, that word wander uh, in Greek is interesting. It's planao. It's the word from which we get planet, which, you know, for, for the ancients, they, they kind of look up at the stars, and most of the stars have these very predictable paths, and then there's these, these certain stars that kind of seem a little weird, and they kind of like wander around in the sky. They don't take the same trajectory as the rest of the stars, and so that's, that's how the, the name for planets came up. They're heavenly wanderers. You know, they're kind of out there with this different path as everything else. And, and so James is concerned here uh, about those who have wandered, who aren't on the path anymore, but they're veering from, and he doesn't use the language of path. What does he say? If anyone should wander from the truth, the truth. The, the truth here does not simply refer to Christian doctrine. I think that's important for us to keep in mind. This is not Christian doctrine in the narrow sense, but it's more broadly all that is involved in the gospel. The, the truth is something to be believed as well as something to be done. Uh, the truth is, is lived out. In the Hebrew mindset, um, particularly, which James is kind of a prime example uh, they never separated the intellectual from the behavioral or, the, or the, the doctrinal from the moral. What you believe and what you do are one. You, you can't separate the two as, as the Greeks uh, might have. Uh, for them, truth was something that people did, not simply something that they believed. And so this wandering of the truth can, can happen in one of two ways. It, it could be a doctrinal wandering. That would surely be a wandering from the truth wandering into heresy or wandering into disbelief. Uh, but it's, it's more than just that. There's a wandering from the truth in our living. And if you were with us all of last year, I preached through the book of Galatians. And we came across Galatians 2.14. And, and there Paul is writing. He talks about this confrontation he had with Peter. And he says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas and Peter, in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish 
customs. At the beginning there, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I saw that they they weren't in step with the gospel, that there was a veering in their application from the the path charted by the gospel. And so this this confrontation is saying it's, it's not just about what you believe. You believe rightly. He wasn't concerned about Peter's doctrine, his beliefs, but you're not living in line with your beliefs. There's, there's a contradiction here. And, uh, and, and so, so this wandering from the truth might be something we do in our minds as we just embrace heresy and, 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 and reject uh, the clear teachings of Scripture, but it might be a wandering in our behavior, uh, our disobedience. And so he continues, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back. And someone should bring him back. I want you to think about something here. Um, who, who are the people wandering? Um, de- described in verse 20, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. So this sinner who, who's turned, this person who has wandered, they are in beginning of verse 19, they're under the umbrella of my brothers. It's, it's one of these brothers that are wandering, um, who, who's referred to as a sinner in verse 20, who, who needs to repent and, and come back to the truth of the gospel. And I think this is uh, significant, just to think about this whole process. Number one, God uses people to bring his people back. Um, that, that might be just a simple observation, but, but, but you know, God is the great shepherd. He, he's the great shepherd of the sheep, but he uses under-shepherds, not, not simply pastors, but, but all of us, in a sense. We, as human beings, as the people of God, are the means through which he brings back those who are, are wandering. God is sovereign, but he accomplishes his purposes through people like us, through human agents. Just as if you were to say, you know, the the axe cut down the tree and the lumberjack cut down the tree. Well, which one is true? Well, they're both true. You know, the axe in one sense cut down the tree, but it was wheeled by a lumberjack who cut down the tree. God is the lumberjack. He's the one ultimately in charge of this process, bringing sinners back to himself. Uh, but we get to be the, the axe in that scenario. We get to be a tool in the hands of God used by him to bring the wanderers back. God is sovereign and he's, he's, he's going to execute this. He's going to accomplish his purposes. But you and I get to be a part of that sovereign plan by being his mouth, by being his hands, by being his feet, by, by reaching out in love to those who have wandered. Hebrews 3, 13 and 14 says, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And he continues, he says, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. So, so encourage each other so that you're not hardened by sin. You know, because if we've come to share in Christ, we will indeed hold this conviction firmly to the end. If, if you're truly in Christ, you will persevere in the faith. You will not ultimately and finally wander away. There, this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Um, and it's, it's something that, that, that I uh, 
passionately uh, affirm and hold to. I think the, the scriptures clearly teach it. Um, that, that if you are truly born again, if God has come to dwell in you, God will be faithful to see that through to completion. Uh, Philippians uh, 1.6, uh, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If God started it, he's going to finish it. God doesn't have unfinished projects. Anyone here have some unfinished projects around their house? You know, that, 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 that wall that hasn't quite been painted yet, this thing that's been broken and sitting off to the side for far too long. You know, maybe you stuff it up in the attic or throw it down in the basement to get it out of sight. Uh, I don't know how many, how many unfinished projects, but God doesn't have unfinished projects. He doesn't ultimately fail to finish what he starts. If he started something in you, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, he will see that through to completion. There, there, there is a need to persevere. We, if, if you don't persevere, and this is something that that the Apostle John makes clear in, in 1 John uh, chapter 2, um, where, where the, I'll go ahead and, if you want, it's, it's so close to James, and just hop over First and Second Peter, and then you get to 1 John. Um, in 1 John chapter 2, he's talking about the, the, the Antichrist, but he's not talking about one singular Antichrist figure who's going to come in the end times. He's talking about how, in a sense, anyone who rejects Jesus is in some way an antichrist. And so he says in, in 1 John 2, 18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come, this is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belong to us. So here, here, John is talking about a wandering too, and this is a wandering that, that is ultimate and that is final. These people don't come back. They don't return. They don't repent. And what he says is that they're leaving. They're departing from the, the believers, the faithful, the church. They, they, they've, they've departed from us, but they, that ultimate, final, persevering departure uh, confirms that they were never really one of us to begin with. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So, so if you're a believer, um, you, you can't, I think this is clear, you can't lose your salvation. It's not like I believed one day and I changed my mind the next and so I was, you know, I was saved and then you know, I lost it and then I changed my mind again and I'm saved again. You know, and then someone comes and talks to me and I change my mind, okay, I'm not saved again. There's not this back and forth. If God has truly changed your heart, come to dwell in you by the Holy Spirit, then he will sustain that faith to the end. He will persevere. And, and if you ultimately, finally apostatize or walk away from the faith, all it's simply doing is evidencing that you were never really born again to begin with. Using the Jesus' example of the parable of the soils, you know, some seed is cast along, you know, this hard, rocky path, and the birds come and gobble it up. And those are people who's like, yeah, I heard a sermon once, but these are not people who claim to be Christians. You know, these are people who maybe I, maybe I went to church, or, you know, I've, you know, heard something about Jesus at a wedding one time. You know, the, the, the seed that is just snatched up right away, no, none of them are claiming to be Christians. But Jesus goes on to talk about some seed that's, you know, cast on rocky, shallow soil. It's just a little, a lot of Palestine has very shallow soil with a rocky 
surface underneath, just enough for, for the seed to sprout, and it comes up green, and it looks good, and then the sun comes out, beats down on it, it dries up, and, and the plant withers. And Jesus says, these are like people who hear the word with joy, and they get excited, and then difficulties come, trials come, and like a, like a plant in shallow soil, they wither up. Um, th- these are not people in Jesus' mindset here that, well, they were saved, but then they lost it. These are people that weren't really saved to begin with, and, and it's easy to be confused by someone's initial excitement at the hearing of the gospel. And then Jesus gives a third uh, soil, you know, where seed is cast among thorns. And the plant grows up, and in the parable, technically, the plant never dies. It just never bears fruit. It's kind of there, but it's it's being choked out so much. The resources of the soil and and the sun are being so crowded out that it just kind of hangs out there but never really bears fruit. And I think in light of the Gospels and particularly uh, a couple of other uh, places in Luke that I think really make this clear, that I don't think Jesus views these Christians... Christians, these would be people who'd claim to be Christians, I don't think he would view them as true believers. If there's no fruit in your life, um, if, if, if you're so choked out by the riches and pleasures and, and, and wealth and activities of this life, that even though you go to church and even though you might claim to be a Christian, Jesus would say, if there's no fruit, you're not truly saved. You're not truly born again. If the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, there will be fruit. There will be fruit of the Spirit in your character. And there will be fruit in your outward behavior and how you treat and interact with others. So coming back to James here, it's important to keep in mind, the ones wandering are brothers. And if they, you know, whether or not they're truly saved uh, is not determined by the wandering. It's determined by how they respond to when we go and pursue them. If we go and pursue them and there's this, Complete, you know, dismissing of any accountability, this pushing away of any oversight. Who are you to talk to me about my faith? Who are you to speak into my life? You know, and they, there's this defensiveness and anger as they push you away. That's a real concern because if the Spirit is dwelling in them, He will bring about conviction in their hearts. And we might be the means of God to pursue them and to be the shepherd that brings that, that sheep back So he says, whoever, uh, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's what's at stake here. Um, That that we are a part of the ministry of God to help one another persevere in the faith. That that this this ministry of, of saving from death and covering over a multitude of sins, without a doubt, we're not claiming to do that in the place of Christ as if, as if we can forgive sins. But the language here, if you follow the pronouns, uh, which is kind of a discipline in Scripture when you're studying, you make sure you're following who's, who's the subject of which verb. So, so who's the subject of the verb save? It's the whoever. Whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save him. This whoever is the you and I that we're described here as saving someone. And again, that verb cover over a multitude of sins We're the subject of that. Whoever turns them will save them and cover over a multitude of sins. It's not that we or our righteousness covers their sin. Only Christ does that. But we partner with Christ in being the means through which that salvation is experienced and received in the lives of those 
around us. That is an incredible responsibility. God does not work in isolation, kind of doing his own thing, but he brings us into the work of the gospel as we challenge people, as we rebuke, as we love. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Um, I think this is done, this process of pursuing a wanderer, I think is done in two particular ways. Uh, We do this personally and informally, just you with someone that you see and you're kind of a little concerned about something that you've noticed. You maybe see a husband and wife talking together and there's just something that just seems a bit disrespectful in their interaction. Or there's just something that kind of raises some red flags. I'm, I'm sure all of us have been in scenes like that where you see people interacting and you kind of go, something's a little, a little off there. And do, you, do you just ignore it? Do you just kind of let it go? Or are you going to have the courage to try to find a way to say something in love and to try to surface that issue. It may not be that. It could be any one of a, of a million different things that we might see. And it's not that we're trying to be policemen and step in and, I saw that you didn't do this. It's just kind of, wait, wait a minute, what, what, what's going on here? Can we talk about this? You know, this is, this is a big deal. You know, God doesn't call us to live this way and, and coming alongside someone in love. And so much of this should be done personally and informally, though as Jesus talked about in Matthew 18, there's a role for this being done corporately and formally in, in, in terms of church discipline. Uh, if, if the personal and the informal goes nowhere, um, then, then it, there might be a place for corporate and more formal accountability to step in. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't love me enough to confront me when I sin. I don't know if you've thought about that, because a lot of us don't, nobody likes to be confronted, right? You know, raise your hand if you like to be rebuked. You know, uh, I've never met anyone who enjoys that. Nobody, nobody really deep down wants that, but we know that we need that. And, and that, that's, that's why we have formal membership here. I think, I think that's one of the reasons why formal membership is, um, if not explicitly, very consistently, implicitly taught in Scripture, because I, I don't have this role as a pastor, as, as one of the elders here. You know, I, I, I can't officially do this with just any Christian anywhere, you know. Someone from Ohio calls me up and says, hey, so-and-so is sinning. I'd say, okay, what do you want me to do about it? You know, I don't know this person. They're not in my church. But there's a sense in which membership says, coming into membership says, I want a church to oversee my faith, to hold me accountable, to encourage me, to care enough to talk to me when I start wandering. Uh, Because as as we sing, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Um, that, that, That we can feel that proneness to wander in each of us and and are we going to put ourselves in places where we welcome we invite others to speak into our lives so i think one application of this passage is have you thought about church membership i actually didn't even write this in my notes but i I think this is an important application of this sermon have you thought about church membership Do, do you recognize that you need this enough to say you know i'm not just going to be this ongoing perpetual attender, 
you know, that I'm just going to kind of come and, and kind of meet some people but keep everyone at arm's length? Or are you going to say, no, I actually want to be a member. I actually want some oversight. I actually want some elders to have some responsibility over me who are, are going to care enough to speak into my life. Um, I, I think that's one of the, the advantages of, of a formal membership is because we acknowledge this is a responsibility that we are taking on. And we don't always do it perfectly, but we're going to do our best uh, to try to do that for you as the body of Christ, not only as elders, but one another. Um, so, so one, have you taken that step of membership? Two, have you put yourself in a place in terms of a small group, a set of friendships? Have you, have you invited accountability in your life? You know, whether you're, whether you're able to be in a small group. Now, if you're not, I encourage you to do that because we need these kinds of intimate relationships where people know what we're struggling with and can pray for us. Uh, but maybe your schedule is such you can't squeeze in a small group. Now, at the very least, find one or two other people and just say, Look, I just I need some accountability in my life. Can we connect just for lunch on on Wednesdays, or you know, can we try to at least call each other on Saturdays or whatever it might be? Can we, every, you know, every, before church every Sunday, can we connect or whatever rhythm you might need? Try to schedule it or have some kind of consistency because accountability without consistency is worthless. You know, let's talk about that someday. Okay. You know, and of course, if you're the one going into sin, you don't want to bring it up because you know they're going to ask you the same question you're asking them. So you kind of just like, hey, buddy, you know, three months later, it gets bad enough. You're like, oh, man, I got to talk about this. Hey, I'm struggling. Oh, me too. You know, like it, schedule something, but, but get people in your life that you say, look, I want you to confront me. I, I want this. I want you to to. to care enough and to know that you have an open invitation to speak into my life if I need it. Um, have you welcomed that in your life? And third, are you willing to be the one to do that? This is a hard thing. This is, it's a hard thing to be the one to, to have the courage to speak up. It's like, you know, when someone at the dinner table has got that piece of broccoli stuck in their teeth and everyone's kind of like, who's going to say it? You know, who's going to Who's going to be the one to speak up and kind of point it out? It's kind of awkward. It's not fun. Nobody's like, yes, I get to tell them they've got something in their teeth. But again, if you care, like, you're going to say something, right? We all want the people who are going to say something, don't we? You know, if your fly is down, if I'm coming up to preach, I want Andy going, up. you know, I want someone, like, getting my attention before I get up and preach with the fly down, you know? Like, we want people in our lives that do that. Are you willing to be that person? Are you willing to be that person? I'm not, again, I'm not talking about being judgmental, being the finger pointer, being the, you know, the policeman. It takes, it takes a heart of love. It takes a heart of a shepherd who goes pursuing that sheep, who, with a heart of compassion, who is grieved by the seriousness of that sin. It takes prayer. I mean, the, right before this, James just talked about that, that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So it takes prayer for this person. We don't go haphazardly into this like a bull in a china shop. Like we, we pray about this. We seek the Lord on this. How can I do this well? But are you willing to confront in love? Because we need that. We need that. We are prone to wander. And God invented the church for a reason, that we together... Uh, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, might help one another to persevere in the faith. Let's pray together. Father God, we do need you.
We need you for the courage to speak up when it might be so easy to be quiet. God, I pray that you would fill us with such love that we can't sit idly by while others wander further and further from the gospel, from the truth. God, I pray that you would would fill us with such love that like parents with an ailing uh, or erring child, um, or like siblings with a brother or sister, we would feel compelled to, to say something, to do something. And God, I pray that you would help us to be so filled with love that it's obvious that we're speaking up in love and not in judgment. And God, I pray for humility. For everyone here that, that when we are on the receiving end of this, that we would be full of gratitude for the courage and love of the other rather than full of pride and defensiveness that they dare speak about something in my life. God, fill us with humility. God, help us. We need your help on both sides of this, whether formal or informal, personal or corporate, whether we're on the, the, the receiving end of the rebuke or on the giving end. God, we need grace each and every way. But God, we thank you that you go with us in this process, um, that you are present by your spirit each step of the way, that while we might be the, the, the tool in your hands, you are the one ultimately bringing back and saving sinners. So help us to be the church well. In your name we pray, amen.